Welcome to Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. Uh, a few times during my time at Kyperian, the last 10 years, I've done a few interviews and people that I consider to be um, Kyperian heroes of mine. The, one of the first ones I, I did was with my mentor, Mickey Schneider, who will most likely be listening to this interview here. Mickey is a dear saint, and we talked for two hours about his life and ministry. And you have to earn your Kyperian stripes. Mickey has certainly done so. Another man that I've been wanting to talk to for a very long time, and now I have an opportunity to do so, in his home here in Anchorage, Alaska, is Jack Phelps. Jack, how are you, my brother? I'm fine, thanks, Yuri. Well, we've been waiting for this for a very long time, and it's finally happened. It took a an opportunity for me to come here with my, my lovely wife to Anchorage, and here we are having this conversation. Jack, let's just, let's talk about your life. Your life is really, really fascinating. We've been talking the last three days here about all sorts of things. Uh, where were you born, Jack? Burbank, California. Burbank, California. What year was that? 1950. Barely. Barely. Second day, of, second day of the year. Second day of the year. Yeah. All right. Anything of significance happened in the 50s? <laughs> Yeah, the Braves moved from Boston to Milwaukee. Uh, I knew you. Were, I knew there was a baseball reference right from the beginning here. Just a topic that I know nothing about. So let's move on here. Yeah. Did you grow up in a Christian home? That's a very interesting question. In a way, yes. My mother came from a French Roman Catholic family. Her grandmother was an initial immigrant from France and only spoke French. So this, of course, is pre-Vatican II. Mm-hmm. And my father came from Presbyterian stock, but his parents left the Presbyterian church during the Machen country. So 1930s. Yeah. Well, late 20s. Late 20s. Yeah. Okay. And so my dad learned the catechism when he was a boy, uh, but after they left, basically they never were church people again. So they retained their Christian faith. Mm-hmm. I know what Calvin says about that, mm-hmm. but um, but anyway, so you could call them lapsed Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. Um, so when mom and dad married right after the war, my dad was a fighter pilot and was shot down, spent time in a POW camp. So when they came back, they'd been high school sweethearts and they married. Mm-hmm. But in those days, he had to promise to allow the children to be raised Catholic. Ah. <laughs> so we were. Yeah. Um, so I always had that both liturgical and godly fear of God and understanding of the Trinity and so forth as a child. But when Vatican II came along, uh, my mother was so discouraged by what came out of that that she stopped wanting to be part of the Catholic Church. And Vatican II, for those who are listening, is essentially a, um, a, a reinvention of the church as it was in its liturgical and cultural life. Yeah. Stop saying the mass in Latin. Right. All that sort of stuff. And so consequently, we were kind of at, at loose ends. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't too long after that that my dad started studying the scriptures again. Okay. And con- basically concurrently with that, I was introduced to the Protestant faith through a campus ministry when I was in high school. And so the combination of those two kind of changed the dynamic. Okay. Um, and my dad ended up going back, uh, becoming involved in the church again, ended up being an elder. Yeah. Um, and for the rest of his life, um, became a very important mentor to me. Godly man. Yeah. I, I buried him in 2012. Okay. You spoke very highly of your father. What did he do? 
Okay, so um, he, he was an engineering student at UCLA, UCLA when the war broke out. Okay. And, uh, of course, as he put it, like every red-blooded American, he went down to enlist. Yeah, yeah. And he ended up being a fighter pilot in the Army Air Force. Um, and after the war, he tried to start a flying service. He was an exceptionally good pilot, uh, had been a instructor pilot for the Army Air Force for a year before he finally got into the war. Yeah. And um, so flying service collapsed. Mm -hmm. I asked him why one time, and he said, every every ex-fighter jock in the world was trying to start a school. There weren't enough students to go around. Uh (laughs) So he went back to Los Angeles and hired on as a clerk with the Pacific Telephone Company. And no degree, because he dropped out of UCLA. Mm -hmm. By the time he retired in 1978, he was senior engineer in the chief engineering department wow. of Pacific Telephone. And he was a very, very, very sharp guy, very dedicated. Yeah. Um, anyway, so. Yeah. I, I miss him every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked briefly about the opportunity, maybe writing something about him. And- yes, I have several file folders full of information on yeah. his life and his parents' lives including letters between my grand, grand great-grandparents in, the, in 1899, 1900, and so forth. Yeah. So I have a lot of material. Plus, I interviewed him a couple times before he passed away. Oh, that's wonderful. And I plan to write a biography of him. That's great. I would love to see more of these things sort of happening in terms of just this, these familial connections through through healthy records. You yeah. Know? One of the things that I hear from your father, he was a man, he obviously persevered through lots of things. Yes. Uh, you've obviously persevered through lots of things. I want, so I'll divide things in a couple of ways. Let's focus on the um, on the political, the Jack Phelps political side. Then we'll focus on the, okay. the reformational side sure. of things. You obviously have a lot of interest in history. I'm here in your home, and I'm surrounded by history. It's a beautiful thing. There's a I told you earlier. There's a there's a story in every every step you take in this house here. It's a lovely place. Where did you become uh, interested in history? Is that just something that was part of you as a child? I think so. Uh, my parents took us to a lot of different places when we were kids. And we'd go on these fairly lengthy vacations in the summer. Dad would use all of his leave. And and we would go to historic locations. One year, 1957, for example. Yes, 1957. No, 58. We uh, We traveled up and down the coast and visited all the... Uh, Spanish missions that had been established, many of them by Junipero Serra, yeah. who has recently come under attack. Yeah, um, and and so I think I developed a, a sense of history partly from that, those sorts of things. Right. Um, and when I first went into college, uh, I was going to be a geology major, okay. but I also wanted to take as many history courses as I could, and which I ended up doing. Yeah, history has always been fascinating to me, and of course, church history has become a big in particular factor for me too. Well, in fact, one of the reasons I'm here is to speak at a, the history conference. I'm just uh, uh, going to be talking about some work that I've done and, and, uh, and Augustine and a couple other things. You'll be talking about Lafranc. Yes. Is there an area of history that you kind of really appreciate in church history? Yeah, probably the late medieval period, the medieval period um, yeah. and, and, it, and up into the Reformation, of course. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah I, I wrote a piece a while back. On, in fact, I gave a series of talks in Europe about uh, the, the development of the Reformation. 
So one of my favorite guys, of course, is Gerhard Grota, mm-hmm. who I refer to as the forgotten grandfather of the Reformation. Uh-huh. Because he started the schools of the common life. And as it turns out, every single major figure in the um, continental Reformation in the 15, you know, 16th century, every single one of those either went to school, to a common life school, or were influenced by someone who had previously been a teacher in one of the common life schools. Uh, so Gerhard Grote's work in his very brief lifetime, he died of the plague, mm-hmm. um, laid the groundwork for for guys like Luther and, and Beza and, and Calvin. Mm-hmm. All those guys were influenced by uh, by common life schools. The historical elements of all these things have connected you to, to politics in, in many ways. You just... Yeah. Um, America, of course, is a country that has not learned from its history. And so it seems like part of your task over your lifetime has been to restore some historical sanity to the American system. It's fascinating. I mean, I've known you for a very long time. And part of the the appeal that I've had in, in knowing you over the years has been you have bridged the world of the church and politics quite well as a statesman for both of them. The political world, what was what was your recollection of your first involvement at a formal level with anything political? Yeah, I, I have no problem remembering that, actually. <laughs> and, and by the way, you know, since Kuiper is the issue here, yeah. um, to some extent, Kuiper ended up becoming a model for me in, for example, when I had the opportunity to get more involved in the political world, I remembered that Kuiper had taken a leave of absence from the church to become the prime minister. That's right. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what actually happened was um, we had some problems. Some of the people in our church had some problems with the runaway activities, child and family services department here in Alaska. Hmm. They had developed, you know, it, it, this is a rage back in the 80s of establishing hotlines where people could hotline someone else who, for alleged child abuse. Interesting. And one of the families in our church, um, they lived out off the grid, and they had a land dispute with a neighbor. And so he outlined them, claiming that they were abusing their child. Oh, my. And the first notification they had of it was a a trooper helicopter landing in their yard. No kidding. With a a trooper and a social worker kidnapped their child. Oh. Flew away with him in a helicopter. Oh, my. That's devastating. Yeah. So I got involved, of course, and spent a lot of time negotiating with people in, in the DFYS and were able to get uh, the child restored to his home. Well, this kind of activity was not an isolated event. And so there was a state senator by the name of Jack Coghill who launched a an investigation from the state Senate side into what was going on. I forget the title, of it, mm-hmm. but it was a, a committee within the Senate to do investigations. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up finding out about my work and invited me to testify before their family group. And and so from that, I became pretty good friends with Jack. Yeah. And so then uh, in the next gubernatorial race, the Republicans nominated a left-wing, a left-of-center Republican woman to run for governor. Mm-hmm. And Jack had run for lieutenant governor, and those are, those are separate elections at the same time. Okay. But they don't run as a ticket during the primary. Right. So Jack pulled 
the largest number of votes of any candidate in the state. No kidding. As lieutenant governor. Yeah. But this left-leaning woman, Republican, won the gubernatorial race uh-huh. uh, by a fairly narrow margin. I forget who her opponent was at the time. But in any case, uh, so th- those two get paired up. Yeah. Well, Jack is a very right-wing guy. Yeah. And she's clearly left-weaning, yeah. uh, pro-abortion, all this kind oh, of okay. stuff. You know? And so they sit down at their first meeting, and Jack told me about it later, and and he offered some comment on some subject, and she looked at him, and she says, Jack, you need to understand there's only going to be one governor. <laughs> so that was the end of their partnership. <laughs> yeah. So he 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 resigned as the uh, Republican candidate and teamed up with the legendary Walter Hickel, okay. and they ran as a third party. Okay. And this Jack is what year is this? This is uh, 1990. Okay. And um, so Jack calls me up and he goes, we need your help. And he says, I'm aware of your work on the family services issue. But he says, I'm also very aware that you're the founder and president of the statewide Christian homeschool order organization. Ooh. And he, Walt, Wally and I would like for you to come onto the team and do our position papers on family and, and education. And I said, OK, I'll do that. So I met with him and Jack. And um, I asked him one thing. I said, look, it, it, I'm, I'm going to work my tail off to get you elected. And I'll bring in a whole bunch of people that can help. But there's only one thing I want out of this. I said, when you're elected, I want you to help us with the State Board of Education because it is all to the left and it hates homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we could, have, we could get a, a couple of people on there that would be advocates for us or at least neutral that would be really, he said, well, okay, we'll worry about that later, but you can guarantee that you can be guaranteed that we'll help you. Okay. So he, so here in the Valley, which you're familiar with is about 40 miles uh, outside of Anchorage. For those of you that don't know, three of us teamed up men who are still friends of mine. And we formed a committee in the Valley and we delivered 85% of the Republican vote to the, to the third party. Wow. And Walter Hickel and Jack Coghill won the race. Wow. And so then Wally Hickel appointed me, okay, on December 7th, notably, Pearl Harbor Day, sworn into office on the 2nd of December. On the 7th of December, he fired all seven members of the State Board of Education. (laughs) That must have been epic. Oh, it was was epic. And the (laughs) National Education Association was turning their hair on fire. (laughs) So, So then, you know, so I sent two or three names into them saying, here's some guys you might want to consider putting on the board. And one day, as chairman of boards and commissions called me up and said, I don't see your resume here. What do you want my resume? Just send it. So I sent my resume, and, and Wally Hickel appointed me to the State Board of Education. Oh, no kidding. Now, you think the NEA was already unhappy. Yeah. Now you've got a known Christian pastor, conservative guy, head of a homeschool association, sitting on the State Board of Education. <laughs> yeah, they the hated worst it. nightmare. They, they hated it, yeah. And uh, anyway, so I don't want to spend all our time on that. But that the point your... is, that's how I got involved in politics. Yeah. And then in 1993, the Republicans took over the state House of Representatives. And there were several good conservative Christian guys that were elected. A fellow who was in the Hickel administration suggested to one of them that he hire me as his chief of staff. And so I went to work for the state legislature. That was the second governor. That was that. No, that was the same governor. The same governor. Yeah. Okay. So this was in 93. Okay. So in the meantime, 
you know, I had been the pastor here since right. 84, right. but finances were such that I had to take outside work. Yeah. And so I, I had a consulting company. I was doing technical editing and working with FAA compliance stuff and took on my, that's my side job. So I laid all that down and went to work for the legislature part-time, well, full-time for three months of the year okay. and then part-time the rest of the year. So I was able to kind of be, oh, well, it was bivocational. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, so that lasted for three years. And then I was offered a job as a general manager of the trade association for the Alaska timber industry. At that time, they were fighting for their life because the Clinton Gore administration was doing everything it could to destroy the timber industry. Right. And so that was, I was the general manager. I had a large staff, but I was the point guy for, for interaction with the government. Okay. So I ended up flying to DC, you know, almost yeah. once a month. Yeah. And, um, and so I had met Senator Frank Murkowski during his first reelection campaign in 1986. Now I'm working with him very regularly. So when George Bush was elected in, in 2000, I ended up, I, I was involved with several Western lands coalition groups trying to, again, trying to fight the Gore agenda in the, mm-hmm. in the Clinton administration, doing terrible things to ranchers, farmers, and timber industry and mining companies. I mean, just horrible. So I was asked to serve at a fairly low level on the Bush transition team. And our, our task was to locate people from the West that had Western lands experience and help place them in various agencies like the Department of Agriculture, Department of the Interior. For example, we're the one, we're the group that recruited Gail Norton to become the uh, Secretary of the Interior. Oh, my God. absolutely wonderful woman. Yeah. And, and a guy named Tom Cincinnati. One of our big nemeses during the Clinton administration was a woman by the name of Lois Schiffer, who was an assistant uh, attorney general for natural resources and environment. She was a radical left-wing environmentalist. And so we put Tom Cincinnati, who was a, a, an attorney from Wyoming, and very solid guy. We got him into that spot at the Attorney General's office. Right. Yeah. So those were the kinds of things we were doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the people we stole for the Department of Energy was Frank Murkowski's chief of staff. So one day he called me up and he said, I got two things. I was actually in Huna. At the airport, my cell phone rings. He calls me up and he says, I, I need two things. He says, I want to organize two town halls in in two towns in southeast Alaska, and I wonder if you'd organize those for me. And I said, sure, no problem. He says, item number two. He said, you've taken garment from me. Somebody said you might be willing to come back and work with us. <laughs> I said, well, I'd certainly consider it. He says, okay, when I, fl- when I fly in for that first town hall meeting, you and I need to sit down. So he ended up, he ended up hiring me as chief of staff. So I took a leave of absence from the church, moved to Washington, D.C., yeah. and served for two years, okay. um, almost two years, until he was elected governor. Then I came back. Yeah. So, so I had those two years in Washington. Yeah. I doubt very seriously if a Christian pastor who has theonomic leanings <laughs> has ever before or since served as the chief of staff to the United States senator. <laughs> that would be a, a, yeah. a great... Uh, the only name that comes up is the uh, Gary North that worked with, uh, with yeah. Ron Paul. Right, he worked with Ron Paul. Ron Paul, but yeah. that, uh, I think your role is pretty, even more unique. Pretty interesting. So, of course, um, when the, the John McCain, when McCain uh, sort of um, chose Sarah Palin yeah. as, her, as his VP, that was shocking to the nation because I don't think at that time anyone knew who 
Yeah. Palin was. Yeah. And suddenly, she was governor, but she was yeah. governor. Yeah, Alaska was somewhat divorced from the national conversation for yeah. for a while there, and yeah. suddenly, a little town called Wasilla makes national headlines. Yeah. Nobody Even, ever heard of it before. Nobody ever heard of it before. Yeah. And here I am, uh, yeah. a few miles from Wasilla, staying yeah. in Wasilla at a hotel. Yeah. And uh, it became sort of the center of attention. I actually remember family members calling me. They were so fascinated with this Palin figure. So where is this Wasilla? And I, I, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I just found out this week where it is. And what was what was that season like here in this part of the country? Uh, and what was your involvement in, in that campaign? Then? Yeah, I, I wasn't involved in the campaign at all. Didn't have any use for McCain. Gotcha. <laughs> and um, but and besides, you know, by that time, Obama was in 2008. 2008. So yeah, so this was second year. So this was 12. Yeah. See, by that time, I had retired from my state service. Yes. Because when I came back from D.C., I went to work for Frank as governor when he was governor. Yes. And then he spent four years, then Palin two years. um, And then I ended up with her successor when she when she resigned after two years to run for yeah. yeah sean parnell who's a wonderful man a christian guy and i had known him for years in fact i knew his father when his father was in the house years before that so uh, so i served those three governors for if you count hickle because that was years ago right and then i retired in 2010 right so by the time palin was doing this on the scene yeah yeah so i was back with the church i was part-time you know, still bivocational, but I was back here ministering with the church. And so I I was kind of phasing out of the political stuff, mm-hmm. right? I was doing international trade stuff for the governor, but... Were you in favor of her uh, gubernatorial campaign or... Well, remember in the primary, she knocked off my boss, Frank oh, Murkowski. That's right. So I was okay. obviously supporting Murkowski. I gotcha, I gotcha. But obviously she was the Republican candidate and that her opponent was a left-wing Democrat. So obviously I voted for her. decision. Yeah. But I was not heavily involved in the campaign. I, I, I ran a couple of campaigns years earlier, but there were campaigns for House and Senate, state House and Senate seats. Okay. So I, I actually managed a campaign in which a, a very conservative Christian woman uh, knocked off a 36-year incumbent Republican Democrat oh my. for the state Senate. That was a fun race. Oh, I bet it was. We had a I lot bet of it was. Fun. Yeah, I bet it was. So before I move into the, the religious dimension here, I'm curious about um, you were involved for decades, and you traveled all over the world. Yeah. You've you got an amazing story. What are what were some of the lessons you learned about being the the political sphere that you kind of brought with you, both positive and negative? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I, 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 I was telling one of my elders just the other day that I'm very, very thankful. You know, I, it, it, it was discomforting that I couldn't be a full-time pastor all those years, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what I've always wanted to be. Yeah. Um, but I, I believe that my work for the legislature, my work for the senator, and my work for even for the for the timber industry, um, and and particularly my work in the governor's office um, taught me an awful lot of things about relating to people, listening to people who I disagreed with, trying to understand them well enough to be able to talk to them, mm-hmm. maybe even persuade them. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned an awful lot of patience through those kinds of experiences that has had a very positive effect on my ministerial activities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I'm, I'm, for example, I'm a much better pastoral counselor now mm-hmm. 
than I was before I had those experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, I, I think that aside from whatever initial benefit I may have conveyed to the state uh, or the federal government during my time of service, I mean I can't assess that. Right. Right. But to me, whatever that is, I'm thankful for it and I praise God for whatever it does, although I'll probably never know about it. But for me, those experiences were more valuable in terms of making me a better pastor than anything else. Mm-hmm. Now, the flip, the flip side of that is that, you know, some of my duties in those regards were giving speeches. Yeah. And so my, my homiletical experience, my years of pastor work prior to that, uh, it was a benefit for that. Yeah, yeah. Right? No so, kidding, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of times when, when the senator couldn't make an engagement and he would send me as his chief of staff to yeah. provide, to give a speech in, yeah. in, in, yeah. his, in his, in his place. Yeah. And, you know, so I was, my, the pastoral experience helped me in that realm. Right, right, right. And, and then vice versa. Yeah. So, so if I, if I say a word like, um, incremental politics, the, the kind of the concept to where you're just, you know, there are plenty of idealists out there. Yes. Were you an idealist like a Ron Paul figure, or did you could learn that there are certain movements you have to make, some trajectories before you get to sort of your idea of what a government should look like? Yeah, that's actually a very, very good question. It reminds me of a book written by Beck, Bre- Benjamin Breckman Wardfield mm-hmm. called Perfectionism. Yes. And I, I fear that perfectionism is a persistent tendency among conservatives, mm-hmm. particularly Christian conservatives. Yeah. And I think it's dangerous mm. because, um, yes, we should always keep our eye on the ball. What is the end game? But almost never in the civil realm do you achieve perfection overnight. Mm. Um, I mean, good grief. All you have to do is look at every country in the world to realize that even the ones that are trending the right direction aren't there yet. Right. And and one of the things you learn in politics is that you have to you have to accept the fact that you can only make incremental gains. And Roe is a perfect example. Roe is a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, and then let's not forget Casey. Let's not forget Casey. People forget that Dodds turned over them both, and it was essential that it turned them over, turned both of them over. And part of that's fruit of politicians who sort of persevered, and people around those politicians that you know worked worked well within the system. Yep. Right. There was no uh, revolutionary overtaking. They yep. work within the system. And yep. And you know, Kuiper Kuiper's example is is kind of a is kind of a, an extreme example because he he went straight to the top. Yes. But he couldn't change everything in Holland overnight. Right. Certainly didn't. Yeah. And he yeah. you know he was he would have been foolish to try. Yeah. He died fighting. He did die fighting, and, and that's that's the issue. Um, so yeah, I think I think we have to. Uh, we have to we have to be careful about being perfectionist and realize that we know where we want to go. We should never forget where we want to, where we want to arrive. Have a tell us in mind. Yes, but but you have to take whatever steps, intermediate steps, to take to get there. Right, and you can't be ashamed of that. Yeah, that's an interesting feature of, of any any sort of leadership, and uh, that's a healthy transition to the pastorate because I, I think when you think of incremental changes within denominations, so think of a you know, the kinds of things Kuiper attempted to do. Um, there is a lot of conversations in the background. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of whiskey and scotch taking place, a lot of cigar smoking, a lot of healthy conversations to sort of. But as long as men have 
the right trajectory. That's not to be understood as some kind of cowardice. I, that's absolutely true. Now, cowardice is always a danger. Right. But because you can't compromise so much that you lose the, your, the bigger picture. Yes, there are fundamental issues we should never compromise. Right. Right. But one of those is the providence of God. Right. And that, that's, that's one of the difficulties we have is, is we have all these people running around with their hair on fire worried that, uh, you know, China's going to take over America. We can't survive an administration like the one we have now. Well, I would say we probably can't survive for long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but so, you know, we're being blamed, of course, unfairly for, for a so-called insurrection. But there are people in our circles who tend to think in insurrectional terms. Mm-hmm. And something I, I first heard in these terms uh, from a man I just recently buried, longtime member of our congregation, said to me many years ago, <clears throat> back in the 80s probably, Christianity is not a revolution, revolutionary religion. And that's a very important statement. Mm-hmm. We're, we are to reform. We're not to create revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, I've long stated arguments that I've made about the American War for Independence. Mm-hmm. It's not a revolution. Mm-hmm. There's a very big difference between what happened in America, which was an action of lesser, lesser magistrates, mm-hmm. compared to what happened in France, which mm-hmm. was a revolution. That was a revolution. And yeah. by the way, uh, you know, the German Revolution of 18, uh, 1848 uh, was of the same sort. And uh, Lenin vigorously studied Robespierre and Saint-Just and, and uh, Danton and those guys in 1789 and patterned the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 after their tactics. This was an intentional It was intentional. To mimic Absolutely intentional. French Revolution, yeah. And you remember, people forget there were two revolutions in Russia in 1917. Mm. In the spring, there was the, uh, the uh, Kerensky uh, okay. Revolution, and it was essentially not bloody. I mean, they didn't kill the czar. Right. Right. Um, and the Bolsheviks mm-hmm. uh, took advantage of that because it gave them some momentum, but they were not satisfied with it. Mm-hmm. The blood didn't run in the streets. Mm-hmm. And and Kerensky was not trying to emulate the the, Rush, the, the uh, French Revolution, mm-hmm. but Lenin and his partners were. That was their intent. And so we need to make that distinction. And, and I think we need to make it in theological terms as well. We're not, we're not to foment the overthrow of the government. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rushdeny, for example, repeatedly said that the most basic self, most basic government in the world is personal self-government under God's law. Mm-hmm. And if we wish to change the country, it must be from the bottom up. You don't do it by electing a president. So this is an interesting thing in terms of uh, political dimension. It's almost like we haven't learned from Dostoevsky's stories. We haven't learned from these revolutions, because we still have that spirit very much ingrained here among yeah. the kind of zealotry we see here. How do Christians, uh, how do Christians properly fight against that, what I call apocalypticism, which is so prevalent every election cycle, right? We're about <laughs> yes. to get this again very soon. Yes. Well, I would say, first of all, we need to, in our minds and in our preaching, yeah, um, we need to we Christians generally need to bolster up our understanding and our faith in the providence of God. Mm-hmm. Look, if we believe that God is absolutely sovereign, which I do with every fiber of my being, 
sure you do as well. If we believe that, then we also have to believe that nothing that happens, not the worst civil government, not the worst rash of abortion, not anything happens apart from ultimately the plan of God. Hmm. Right? So um, th- this is exactly why uh, New Testament tells us to pray for our kings, huh? uh, that we're not to rebel or to try to take away his responsibility of exercising God's judgment, take it into our own hands. Uh, Romans 12 and 13. Right. Which, by the way, is a terrible chapter break there. Yeah, yeah, it's true, yes. No, we have to trust in the providence of God. Now, what that means is that when things go bad, we realize that's part of how God is, is perfecting the church and through the church perfecting the world. So instead of shaking our fist at it, we need to double down on what, what am I not doing right? Mm-hmm. What, what sins in my life or in my congregation's life or in my community's life mm-hmm. do we need to work on reading so that we can? So begin in the self sphere and then build from there. Well, yes. I mean, again, that's why, I, that's why I mentioned Rushdie's comment about uh, the most important government is personal self government under God's law. And I've told my congregation repeatedly, until the church as a whole, or the majority of the church, mm. repents and gives proper respect and authority to civil law as God defines it, mm-hmm. and it commits to living in terms of that, we can't expect to have a significant influence on our culture. Yeah, I think it's that may have been one of the absent things in uh, Kuiper's theology overall that as I read over the last 20 years is that there was not there was some devotional categories for piety personal yes. piety but there's not much of a developed sense of self-government and repentance before before a tribe and a community here it, you, know, you mentioned rush duty the one unique feature of rush duty is that when he talked about predestination or providence he didn't simply view it in terms of you know individual soteriology correct there's a political implication to predestination right absolutely in Rush Duty. So, Jack, when you think of uh, these political endeavors over the over the decades you've been in, invested in, I see some some pictures back there, some legislation that you were very influential in, in passing, things like that. Um, what was relationships between Democrats and, and re- this is somewhat of an obvious question, re- Democrats and Republicans when you started and today has that do you see the current status as a, a helpful thing or unhelpful? Well, that's that's actually. The, the question brings a smile to my face because it, it's obviously there's so much more polarization now. Yes. Right. Um, I mean, I remember pretty well the 1960 election between Richard Nixon and, and John Kennedy, Kennedy. Kennedy. Right. And if you go back and you can find them on YouTube, if you go back and look at their debates, yeah. it's a very different situation. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, Kennedy would not be allowed in the, in the Democrat Party. Today. Correct. Yeah. There's no question about it. Easy. So this polarization, it's it's dangerous to society, right? Because people get so angry. And uh, but in the providence of God, it's actually forcing things to the front. Hmm. For example, the abortionists now are not pretending. Yep. Yep. They're no longer pretending. Um, they they flat out say, kill it if it's inconvenient. And it doesn't matter if it's already born, you can kill it. Right? Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 
They might have thought that, but they would never have said it out loud. Aaron Wren talks about two phases of political history. He talks about the the uh, neutral world, which is the world I think that you're elaborating on, right? There was a lot of civility and, and, and winsomeness between Nixon and Kennedy. Mm-hmm. There were jokes between the two of them. It was a very, I mean, I've, I've seen that debate a couple times on YouTube. But then that transitions to the world we live in now, which is the negative world, they call it, which is a world where everybody is intentionally tribal and objective about what they hate and what they love. Yeah, that's true. And Democrats hate life. They hate God's morality. They hate everything that's... Well, my wife puts it bluntly. They hate God. They do. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. They hate God. So, in other words, you're saying, is it a lot easier to politic these days than it was in the early days when you were involved? (laughs) I doubt it's easier. Okay. But it is more clear-cut. Okay. You know, I think, of course, I'm not alone in saying this. It's almost to the point of a truism, but... But discourse is gone. Yeah. And that that's very tragic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can recall when they were debating that terrible bill right after 9-11, the uh, Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, um, I hadn't, had, hadn't been able to move my wife, family back to D.C. yet. So they were still living in Alaska. And I was, I was renting the basement apartment of Christopher Dodd. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, the, the left-wing senator yeah. from, from Connecticut. Yeah. And, and, and Chris and I would have fairly frequent conversations. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. And um, I remember one particular conversation we had about the Patriot Act. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, um, it, we have to be really careful about knee-jerk react. And I said, this, that's what's going on right now. And, of course, he knew that I worked for a conservative senator yeah. uh, on the other side of the aisle. And, and but one of the things I said to him is I said, you know, I'm very concerned about this idea of creating a new bureaucracy to uh, provide airport security. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, we should beef up airport security. I have no problem with that. But draw up the specifications and then contract. Mm. Don't create a new bureaucracy. Yeah. And and Dodd, bless his heart, he said to me, he said, you know, I actually agree with you. But it's probably not going to happen that way. <laughs> <laughs> he knew the system. He yeah. knew things were going. Yeah. And I had the same conversation with my boss. And he, he said basically the same thing. He said, and actually he put in some amendments that would have toned a lot of it down. But all of them were, all of them died. So my impression, let me correct me if I'm wrong. My impression is before 9-11, you had, um, you had a general conservative movement with some exceptions that upheld uh, protectionist policies like Pat Buchanan, like yeah. that kind of world, right? So much more American first sort of things. And then 9-11 happened and everybody became a neoconservative. Yeah, right? well, I wouldn't say everybody became a neoconservative, but the neoconservatives began to carry the day. So they became more prompt. They were there hidden, but they just came out. Correct. And uh, Bill Crystal being a prime example of yeah. this, those surrounding uh, the Bush administration. Yeah. This kind yeah. of, well, Cheney. Cheney, yeah, yeah, classic example. Yep, yep, yep. the the uh, probably the icon of neoconservatism. Uh, and now we're seeing. See, this is already a failure in my interview strategy here. We're we're back to politics, especially because I I, <laughs> I I am so fascinated by these conversations. And now you've seen this resurgence of, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan just turned eighty four a couple of days ago, and in my estimation, everything that he did philosophically in his writings, which was you know anti. The absurdity of the immigration laws in the United yeah. States. He was already a, a ahead of the oh, game. Yeah, miles ahead. Miles ahead. Yeah. 
And he set the stage for Trump to come down that elevator. Absolutely. And so now, now we have this, this lingering American first philosophy, yeah. which I, I find it appealing for my end here, sure. which has sort of blossomed to this Christian nationalist movement. Yeah. Tell me, just give me some general thoughts here on what you think about the, first of all, the protectionist, the idea of concentrating first and foremost in, in, in American ideals before China or India. Yeah. And then what are your thoughts on the Christian nationalist movement? Yeah. Uh, okay. So first of all, the idea of a country protecting itself is hard, hardly absurd. Yeah. Right. Right. The country that won't protect itself won't exist for long. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, um, so I do think that, uh, um, one element of that is to get, is to, is to quit doing things that, that undermine our own ability to protect ourselves, like, like getting into protracted foreign wars that really aren't our, our business. Right. Right. It was one of the big disappointments of W's administration is, you know, he had huge domestic issues that needed to be solved. Yeah. But he wasn't the least bit interested in infrastructure. I mentioned, yeah. Well, I mentioned Gail Norton earlier. Yeah. We had huge problems in the interior department that, that were created by the previous administration. And Gail was all gung ho to fix them, along with Tom's work in the, in the Justice Department. They got no support from the White House. Mm-hmm. Gail ended up Resigning because in frustration because you couldn't get anything done. Mm. Because what? Why? Because George Bush was more interested in completing his father's work and destroying the Middle East mm. and protecting oil interests there. So that was a polit- uh, that was a politics of legacy there. That was, he, he, absolutely, you wanted to carry that. Um, so what about Christian nationalism? Yeah. So I don't even like the term, okay. uh, but it certainly exists. Yeah. It, and that term is an accurate. Yeah, term. I got a book right here yeah. by uh, yeah. Stephen Wolf that I'm reading right now. Yeah, and it's an accurate term. <laughs> yeah, but. They're huge dangers. Okay. Right. We must, we must protect our own national interest. That involves a lot of things, economics, politics, uh, military activity, and so forth. But the idea that somehow America is the modern version of ancient Israel, mm-hmm. that's an absurdity. Because the Bible is very, very clear. Um, Jesus told in the thir- 21st chapter of Matthew. Yes. Jesus told the leadership of the temple, mm. your day's over. You have, you have corrupted the worship of God, and I will take away from what you what you have and give it to a new nation. And your house will be left desolate. And your house will be less desolate. Now, who's that new nation? Yeah. Well, Peter, quoting the Old Testament, says that the church is a nation of priests, you know, the kingdom of God. Yeah, First Peter 2, yeah. Yeah, right. So he, he, he takes a passage of scripture that described ancient Israel in the Old Testament period. Right. And he specifically applies that to the church. Yeah. So the church is an international nation. Yeah. International no one nation politics. in this world represents the kingdom of God. Right. Um, and so it, when we turn the recognition that as a country, we have a responsibility to protect our borders, protect our interests, protect our people from foreign invasion, all of that kind of stuff. That's one set of circumstances. We must not equate that with the kingdom of God. Right. It's part of the kingdom of God. Right, right, right. Right. And, and so if, if 
if the church was is doing its job in infiltrating the culture and train teaching the culture to think more in more Christian terms, then there can be such a thing as a Christian nation, mm-hmm. right? But but it's not. It shouldn't. It should never be thought of as unique to any one particular nation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? I mean, my prayer would be that Ukraine and Brazil, places where you and I both have very vested interests. Mm-hmm. Would become Christian nations, right, 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 and and there's there's indications that there's some movement that yeah, direction. Surely, but again, we have to trust the providence of God, and remember, the world isn't going to end next week. Right, right. This is a long term, a long term project. So the failure essentially would be if we adopt this kind of um, scatological paradigm where we're making false equations between the United States and Israel. But you wouldn't be opposed to a Christian nation protecting its own interests before the interests of others. Of course. Right? That seems like a... The nation doesn't do that when it just... Right, exactly. That's That that makes perfect sense. I'll tell you something else. Yeah. I mean, quote, late and very dear friend Otto Scott. Yes, yes. He said, no country in the history of the world has survived the loss of its faith. Mm. I think he's absolutely correct. Yeah. I mean, the historical record will show it. But if we think we're exempt from that, we're crazy. Yeah. And that's what's happened. In a month or so, I'll be 73 years old. So I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of things. Yeah. I was born I was born in that immediate uh, post-war period. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that despite all the ridicule of the Beaver, leave it to Beaver families and all that <laughs> sort of thing, this country was very much more a Christian country than it is now. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I mean that the the mores of people were largely guided by the Christian faith. Um, yes, there was, there's always been adultery. There's always been, you know, sin in people's lives, but you were not, you would not think of making it. There was a, there was a, a, a consensus on what public shame was. Yes. Well, let me give you a, a very tiny example. When I was in high school, I knew of almost no boys of my age that would think of using foul language in front of their girlfriends. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, guys are sitting around the locker room. We'd use scatological language, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in front of the girls, we didn't. Yeah. It was just not thought of, not acceptable. Yeah. And once in a while, somebody did it, they got scorned. Yeah. Now, today, the girls are worse than the boys. I know. Right? There's, yep. I mean, so that's a tiny illustration but you can look, you can find it in lots of places. And uh, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I remember sometime in the 50s, uh, or early 60s maybe, whenever it was that, uh, you remember uh, Peter Sellers in the Black uh, the uh, Pink Panther movie? Yes. The second one, uh, Shot in the Dark? Okay. Okay. I remember going to the theater with my grandmother okay. to watch that movie. Uh-huh. And I remember her being absolutely shocked and appalled and disgusted that in the film, it showed a man and woman in bed together. <laughs> now, there was no need, no nudity. Right, right, right. The very fact they were shown together in a bed was, was unacceptable to my grandmother's generation. And, and it was shocking. And remember, you know, the, it didn't take very long after that things got much worse. Yeah. I mean, movies were putting Playboy to shame. That's what I'm trying to say. There's this overall sensibility to morality that kept things in check. Yeah. Okay, so my brother and I, in the 1950s, I would be maybe four years old, or five. Let's say I'm five, because mm. kindergarten time. 
and my brother was three years older. We lived in uh, San Gabriel Valley, west of Los Angeles. My parents had no problem in allowing us to walk down to the corner, get on a city bus, ride into downtown Alhambra, go to the movie picture, the movie show, you know, the picture show, and get out and ride the bus back home. I would slit my own throat before I let my grandchildren do that today. <laughs> right? It's simply not safe. It's not safe, yeah. But in those days, it was nothing. Yeah. It was, it was, it was the, um, the uh, again, I mentioned the, the consensus of public shame, but there was also a consensus of what public security was like. Yes. There were, yes. there, there was almost like this uh, communal agreement that we protect each other's children. That's correct. And there was a sense we wanted to preserve what was beautiful and pure. And, um, you know, moms would say, hey, look, your children is here. We're going to do this here. Is that allowed? Yeah. Yeah. These days there's no longer. Uh, well, so in, in the, the the final sort of political uh, little theme there I want to focus on is the the fusion movement that occurred in the 60s and 70s that created the moral majority, which was the, the synergism between libertarians and conservatives. So let's mm-hmm. put the um, an example would be the, the John Birch Society and the National Review, the William F. Buckley crowd, yeah. right? Familiar names to you there. As you look back at that merger that created the Jerry Falwells and a lot of good things that came out of it, mm-hmm. do you see it now? Was that a happy marriage or should we have maintained distance from one another yeah no uh, there's a couple of things about that one is that the, the, the confusion between christian thought and libertarian thought uh is, is 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 an area of peril okay because while we may agree on some issues with libertarians libertarianism has its roots more in iran than it does in jesus christ uh-huh. i think that so we have to be very very careful um, but but in, in forming partnerships to accomplish incremental improvements in society and in, in law, there's value in those kinds of coalitions. My biggest problem, and I remember saying this at the time, uh, that the troubling thing about the moral majority uh, is they didn't have a long-term vision, and they were not careful. So what happened was, People like James Dobson, yeah. Falwell, and those guys—they became—they they went to bed with the. Yeah. And um, look, especially now, the Republicans are more reflective of our 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 positions. But but the Republican Party is not a Christian party. When you say they're, they're more reflective of our position, it, the impression I get as I look at this is they have been forced. Yes. Reflect, not, they didn't come voluntarily. No, 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 that's true. And in fact, you know, the Liz Cheney, of course, is, is the classic example, but there are a whole bunch of them, Mitt Romney and others, Correct. who don't want right. the Republican Party to move that direction. Right. They, that, what, that's where the Never Trumpers came from. Right, right, right. You know, the, that whole coalition of morons that, that run that. <laughs> Correct. I yeah. can't think of the name of their organization. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they, 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 they're, well, <laughs> Howard Phillips, God rest his soul. Yeah, I never met him. Um, uh, but, uh, he sat right in the same place you're sitting right now, yeah, yeah. more than once. Uh, yeah, well, it was originally TV. called the U.S. Taxpayers Party. The U.S. Taxpayers Party, that's right. Not many people know that, but that's yeah. exactly what's called. And I tried it. to tell him, why don't you change the name to the Christian Party? Oh, okay, yeah. He said, well, I wouldn't fly. <laughs> that's true. But, but Howard said something uh, one time during that same period. By the way, 
my, I and my son, my oldest boy, and my the fellow who is now my son-in-law, he wasn't then, we gathered enough signatures to put uh, Howard Phillips on the ballot as a presidential candidate in Alaska. No kidding. Yeah. And then, and then we, we had to take the state to court because they were going to reject our, uh, our, our petition petitions because they said it wasn't timely. But according to the constitution, it was kind of timely. Their regulations said it wasn't. So we took him to court and the court ruled in our favor and forced them to put him on the ballot. So he ran for office. Yeah. 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 When he was running for president. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Okay. Well, anyway, that was inside. But Howard said something one time. He said, you know, the problem with the modern two-party system is that the uh, the Democrats are trying to run us over a cliff at 100 miles an hour. The Republicans are trying to run us over the same cliff at 20 miles an hour. Mm, that's that's a good analogy. It's profound, but it's absolutely true. It, it is true. And I, I don't, maybe you've gone the same transition, but in the early 2000s, um, I think there was this sort of uh, virtue of purity when it came to politics, right? We wanted to vote for... You know, John down the street because he ran for this third party that uh, yeah. you know, he wouldn't win. But yeah. it was such um, an attempt to bring a kind of perfectionism, which you mentioned earlier there. So I even though I was very involved in the Constitution part of those early days, I, I think what's changed in my mind is that I have seen that these third parties, ultimately, they die the deaths of a thousand details, which means they die within their precisionism. Yeah. Which means now I look at the political picture and I see very clearly two distinct ideas. And we're working within the Republican Party, not because we think they're messianic, but because they're the vehicle that we use, just like right. Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands. Right. So have you gone through that transition as well? Yeah. Um, I, I, yes. I don't like to call myself a conservative. Okay. Because the word implies you're conserving something, you're mm. saving something, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to save anything. I want to move us towards Christianity, mm. right? Yeah. But but let's face it, you know, it's, it's well entrenched in a way we think. And the liberals, of course, have, have appropriated liberalism uh, as a name, when really what they are is revolutionaries. Right. Um, but, but, yes, I do think, and this is why... I th- mentioned partnership or teaming up on issues. Yeah. I, I don't think we should. My problem with the moral majority is that as soon as they got Reagan elected, they thought their job was finished. Right. That See, that's what I'm saying. They didn't have a long-term view. And so then, of course, they supported everything that that the Bushes did. And let me give you one example. David yeah. Souter. Yes. David Souter was a terrible nominee. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. Right. As, as, as was later proved, right? Mm-hmm. So get this, during the confirmation hearings, the number of people were called to testify, including Phyllis Schlafly. Yeah. Schlafly supported the Souter nomination. There was only one well-known conservative who opposed it. His name was Howard Phillips. How about that? He went before the committee and said, this is a terrible choice, and here's why. And yeah. he talked about how Souter was on the board of a, of a hospital that was performing thousands of abortions, abortions a month. And, and Souter was okay with that. And that was one example. Yeah. But anyway, the point is, the whole conservative movement, including Phyllis Schlafly, supported Souter's appointment because he was a Bush appointment. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what I mean about falling in bed with this. That's the blind loyalty. There. Yeah, blind loyalty. And you know, Phillips was the only one who stood against that, and he was a lone voice. Yeah, and for many years, you had uh, you know Phillips and Ron Paul, who were even from the 70s, were sort of the, the pure voices within yeah. trying to... Yeah. 
trying to make a difference there. So, okay, now now shifting to let's shift to we're in the same line of thinking. Let's shift to Christian Reconstructionism, okay, which which came about in a, a period of American history where some of these movements were rising politically, mm-hmm. more majority. Uh, Gary North tells stories of sitting in the same platform with Jerry Falwell in those early days. What was your, what was, first of all, what is Christian Reconstructionism or what was your, your part in it? Okay, well, for definition, um, and, and it's been badly understood, especially by some people who claim to be theonomists today. Okay. Um, Rushdie's point was that we, we should encourage the church, teach the church, the importance of genuinely obeying Jesus Christ, which means obeying him wholesale in all areas. And that as that, um, and, and that, and then it, it's in all areas of life, mm-hmm. not just your personal piety, mm-hmm. but in the way you think, the way you do business, the way you treat other people, the way you, uh, engage in the body politic. Mm-hmm. And, and so his 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 concept was. I remember him making analogies to the to the um, Fabian socialists. Oh, and in my in my little book that was originally, well, it was published by Canon Press in 1994 against education vouchers. Yes, um, I I talk about the uh, incrementalism Fabians mm-hmm. as they sought to destroy the Christian element in British education. Mm. So what did they do? They they pushed for subsidies. And Rushney's point about the Fabians is that they had they were they were secular postmillennialists. Mm. They they believed that they they needed to do things now that a hundred years from now would bear fruit. Mm-hmm. They didn't think they could fix it overnight. Mm-hmm. Right? But what they did was they you know, you're talking about people like uh, 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 George Bernard Shaw and mm-hmm. H.G. Wells, mm-hmm. right? And so you read their books, and and all they're they're promoting uh, statist mm-hmm. thinking, and and then they infiltrated the schools, uh, they infiltrated uh, politics with the idea that they would they would sow the seeds that would that would move the world towards the more socialist state. And um and Rushdie was saying, look, their 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 beliefs are totally wrong. They're godless, mm. but their tactics are wise. Right. And so Christian Reconstruction as as Dr. Rushdie envisioned it, envisioned it was the seeding of ground by faithfulness to Jesus Christ that would eventually permeate, permeate society and, and bring about transformation. Mm. So it was reformation, not revolution. Right. And he often said, you know, if, it's, if, if, if the world is going to change for the better, it's not going to be from the top down. Mm. It will be from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. And so I get very frustrated at people who, who, who act as if they can solve the moral problems of the world by electing people to office. Mm. Um, so that's that's what Christian Reconstructionism is about. It's not about you know electing the right people and then top down imposing the standards of God's law on the country. It's a matter of Christians increasingly understanding the value of that and then promoting up people into leadership that will help carry that out, so that we reform our laws into into 
laws that more more accurately reflect what God defines as justice. Right, right. Not inventing justice for ourselves. Right. And I can give you lots of anecdotes, so I won't. So I'll move to the second part of the question. Yeah. Um, how was I involved? Well, I had the for- good fortune of meeting... Do- okay. So my first Rush Duty book that I ever read was... Uh, uh, by this standard, by what standard? By what standard? Which was his evaluation yeah. of Van Til. Defense of Van Til. It was yeah. assigned. It was assigned text in in a, in a homiletical. I mean, yeah. in an apologetics class. No kidding. Yeah. And um, so I read that, and I go, "Wow, this is really interesting stuff, yeah. right?" It's a big book. Yeah. And so uh, very philosophical, Jack. It's a very detailed, yeah, philosophical apologetic for Van Til. So that's a. So you yeah. read that when? This is. I read that in 1974. Ooh. Um, yep. And then, and then at the same time I discovered, so I was going to school on the GI bill Okay. and my wife had just had her third child. Okay. So we were, we, we were doing well mm-hmm. financially. Okay. I mean, we're doing great in other ways, yeah. but we didn't have a lot of money. Right. So, um, I had a friend, uh, in school with me, uh, name you might know actually John W. Kohlenberger. Huh. Uh, who who is uh, the guru of the computer generated uh, concordances? Oh no! He did kidding. the first concordance uh, out of the NIV, for example. Is that right? Yeah, a wonderful guy, very sharp. Uh, he was he was a better Greek student than I am, and I than I was, and I was a pretty good Greek student. Yeah, and very very good in Hebrew and so forth. But anyway, so John, we were all working our way through college, or seminary, whatever, and and, and I I was drawing the GI Bill and working part-time. Well, he had a part-time job at a Christian bookstore mm-hmm. in uh, Northeast Portland. And um, so I used to go over and see him and, and goggle at books that I couldn't afford to buy. Well, I discovered the Institutes of Biblical Law <laughs> on the shelf. Yeah. And there was no way I could afford the $30 price. Yeah. And so John used to let me come over to the bookstore, take a copy off the shelf, Go sit in his office and read it. Oh, and I read the entire book that way. Wow. Not one day, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I thought, I, I gotta, I gotta learn more about this guy. So that's how I got intrigued with, with Rushdie's work. Yeah. And I told my dad about it. My dad had been a respecter of God's law for a long time. And, um, so in 79, I had the fortunate opportunity to, to go up to Calcedon. Um, I was invited. I had a friend that was a youth director at a large Baptist church in the Bay Area. He asked me if I would come down and be the speaker for the youth had a retreat. Would I come down and give several talks to his young people, his 30 teenagers? And so when Sunday rolled around, he said, by the way, he said, uh, once or twice a month, we drive up to Vallecito to where Rushton teaches. You want to come with us? Yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so that day, um, I went to this little lecture in the in the in the patio there and yeah. and then he invited everybody to come in the house and and I ended up sitting in his living room and talking with him. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um That was that was Rushton's version of Labrie, right? Yes, and very much it was. Um I, I don't know how much time we have. No, please go. Yeah. But I, I'll tell you one little funny little side story about that visit. Yeah. So it must have been in the fall because football was going. Yeah. And so here we are in the presence of 
one one of, if not the most erudite theologians of our time. Right. Um, and after the supper, you know, I kind of have a buffet supper after this lecture. There were five or six younger guys who all went into this side room to watch a football. And I said, why in the world? I'm glad they did because it gave me some, <laughs> some opportunity. almost private time. There were one or other two people sitting there. Yeah. I had this wonderful conversation and those other idiots are watching football, <laughs> right? It's just like, what is wrong with you guys? There's <laughs> an opportunity to spend time with uh, the man who supposedly, what I believe to be the case, read a book a day. You know, I had the privilege later. He wasn't fond of letting people do this, but I had the privilege to go down to his library, yeah. which was contained in a separate building below his house. I've only seen pictures of it. I never... Yeah, there are about 35,000 volumes. And um, it's very interesting because uh, I learned something from him beginning that day. Uh, if you look at some of my books that I've gone through, almost all of my Van Til books, for example, you'll see notes on the back pages, the blank pages in the mm-hmm, back of the book, mm-hmm. extensive notes with page references, mm-hmm. right? I learned that from Rush. Yeah. You know, it's not, I don't like books that are underlined or highlighted. Yep. And very minor penciled marginalia is okay. But putting it at the back of the book is really helpful because then it becomes your own index. Your own index. Uh, you can right. see here I do the same thing with my uh, yeah. with my books in the front, not in the back. But I've yeah. done the same thing for 15, 20 years now. Yeah. That's fascinating. These little habits are probably what made him so sick. The yeah. consistency of these habits made him such a successful reader. Yeah. Sort of a... Yeah. Anyway, so that started a relationship that was valuable as the time went on. I think I mentioned to you the other day that uh, in the early days of my pastorate here, yeah. so I had served an interim pastorate and two associates before I came up here. But that was in the Baptist world, right, before mm-hmm. my conversion to the Reformed faith. Mm-hmm. And or one of them was kind of during my conversion. And so then I, I, I took five years out to study the Reformed faith before I ended up taking the pastor here in 1984. And so in those early years of my pastor here, I knew very few Reformed. So when I needed to talk to somebody about something or work through a problem, it was Rush that I called. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think anyone who knew him well would, would confirm this, but Rush was extremely gracious with his time. I would call him, and I'm sure he'd be in the middle of handwriting a manuscript. Right. Which he did, right, by right. the way. Yeah, yeah. With a, with a, with a, uh, a fountain pen. Wow. Um, and he would just, he would drop what he was doing. He would take whatever time I needed from him and talk with him. I mm-hmm. mean, he was hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had the privilege of visiting him a number of times over the years, sometimes. And, um, owe him a huge amount. Mm. And it doesn't mean I end up agreeing with everything that he wrote. Right. Um, but he was a huge influence. Yeah. And not just theologically, not just philosophically, but personally. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real benefit to um, coming to the reform, reform faith through these figures because they were you know, Bob Inc. makes a distinction between, he says, what is Reformed theology? Reformed theology is uh, ecclesi- ecclesiology, that's what he says. Mm-hmm. Calvinism 
is the application of ecclesiology to all of life. Mm. Well, that in itself is a whole different perspective in the way people view it today. You yes. talk about Calvinism today, everybody's like, well, five points of you know, Calvinism. Yeah, they, they think they think the uh, the, syn- the, synod- the canons of the Synod at Dort define Calvinism. Right, right. And they're yeah. dead wrong. Right. And then, it, yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of that, how did you how did you accept Calvin into your heart, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Yuri, it's very interesting. Um, it was a transition for Debbie and me, uh, both of us in our Protestant years, um, uh, grew up around dispensationalists, uh-huh. and um, and I will say, uh, some of the men who f- helped form me as a Christian and ultimately as a pastor, were very godly guys in the Baptist faith who were dispensational in their theology, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's very, very important that we understand we may strongly disagree with their interpretation of Scripture, but there are very wonderful godly people in those camps. Mm. But anyway, so, you know, it was while I was overseas um, that that I it became very clear to me that, that I wanted to be in the ministry. Whether I could qualify or not was another question, but I certainly wanted to study for it. Mm-hmm. So I came back, finished college, went to what is now a seminary. At that time, it was only called a Bible church, a uh, Bible uh, school. And uh, I'm very thankful I went there because the Greek professor was as good as they get. Goodrich was wonderful as a mentor and as a teacher. But it was a dispensational school. And by the way, Dr. Goodrich was the only professor there that I know of who was not dispensational. Oh, wow. And he had to keep it in the closet. Yeah, I have no doubt, yeah. But anyway, um, they the one thing about that school is that they had an exceptionally broad library. So I found Dr. Hodge and Dr. Warfield. Ooh. And... Dr. Burkhoff. You're basking all the Princetonians. And that's what I did. I started reading. And by the time I, my second year, I'm thinking, these guys are helping answer questions. Sensationalism is. So by the time I graduated, I had abandoned, you know, premillennial, pre tribulational, you know, sevens. You know, the dispensations, yeah. the days of Daniel and all that stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, so dispensationalism was off my list. Now, this is difficult because it's a dispensationalist school. Yeah. But I had to honestly declare it. And so they they required me to write a lengthy paper yeah. explaining why I had become covenantal. Yeah. And um, then I had to meet with the committee. They looked at the paper. And God bless their souls. They said, Mr. Phelps, we do not agree with you, but you have done a commendable job of explaining why you've taken the position you did. We're going to grant you. Oh, how about that? That's very honorable. Yeah, it is. Part. It is. But that's when I went to the backside of the desert. Okay. Uh, I went and got a job in a remote part of Oregon, uh, bought a piece of property, and uh, studied for five years yeah. to try to solidify my understanding of the reform. You kind of had your own little theological boot camp there. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, by the grace of God. And and I was supplied with some good books. There was a Presbyterian minister that I had met um, during the war who um, 
took a particular interest in me for God knows why. Uh, but he and his wife came and visited us in Portland a couple of times. And he brought me some of his books, mm. including, uh, well, yeah, some of the Princetonian guys. And uh, I still use, I have them in my library. I still right. use them sometimes. Right. He actually gave me a Chinese Bible as well. Oh, did he really? Just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, what was your call to the pastorate like? You know. Did you see a bright light? No, yeah, it's very interesting. I, 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 I now have a different view of what those calls should be like okay, than I okay. did at the time. Okay. So let me say this, that while I was serving overseas and having, you know, the opportunity to meet some of these dedicated missionaries that had served over there for years, um, I realized that my desire was to be mm-hmm. now. Or possibly foreign missions. And so, in that sense, there's kind of an element of self-ordination. Uh-huh. Um, but I also recognized that it, I really had to line up with what was in Titus and Timothy. Right. And and and, and then I needed to learn more. Right? Yeah. So, I went to school for it. And um, and then, during that time, as I mentioned, I, I changed my whole theological perspective. Yeah. Right? So, there were... I had a homiletics professor who considered me the star of his class. In yeah. fact, only two homiletics students got to address the entire uh, student body at the end of the year, and I was one of them. Okay. Um, and he had three churches lined up that were, wanted me to candidate. Wow. Well, they were all Baptist churches. They were all dispensational. By that yeah. time, I wasn't yeah, in that category. The paradigm had changed. Yeah. Right. And so I turned out he was very angry at me. Mm. Well, they need your preaching skills. I go, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, they yeah, don't. They don't, right, yeah. So, because that was part of the problem. And by the way, I I applied to and was accepted at uh, Trinity Evangelical in, in, in Chicago, uh, which which was my first choice for, for advanced degree, and also at Westminster. Now, it's, it's interesting, because yeah. had I gone to Westminster, I'd have been there right in the middle of the shepherd controversy. Yep. <laughs> Right when Jim Jim was there, yeah, that's right, he was. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so yeah, it, so I didn't do any of that. I did have that confirmed by the church that I was attending when I was going to to to, to school. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the pastor he just recently passed away, but he was also another wonderful Baptist man who helped me, and he actually got the deacons to fund a year of internship under him. Oh, wonderful. So I, I served that year of internship, which coincided with my senior year seminary. And so I see that as the second witness, right? And yeah, so yeah, at that yeah. point, at that point, I was confident that God would use me in the ministry, just not now. And so by the grace of God, I got those five years, whereas away from actual ministry responsibilities, Although I did get invited to do some preaching once in a while when the pastor that I was, we were spending this little church and when he was going to be gone, sometimes he does. Yeah. But, but I didn't have any real pastoral responsibilities. And so I was studying, working full time, uh, raising some cattle, uh, and, and, uh, and reading, 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 reading. reading. Mm-hmm. So for the last two years, two and a half years we were there, I actually um, had about four families from three different churches. They would come up to the house once a week for Bible study. And so I was able to then, for the first time, actually teach some of the stuff I was learning about the Reformed faith. Yeah, that solidified. It, it just solidified a lot, yeah. And so when, when this church reached out to me and asked asked me to come up, I was at the point where I was 
okay with that. And this was what year? 1984. 1984. So you you take this position here in, in Anchorage. Well, it was in Talkeetna. Talkeetna. It was 125 miles north of Anchorage. Oh, okay. Time. We okay. Moved, moved down towards okay. Okay. And at that point, you had uh, at that in the early days, you had reconstructions, convictions. You kind of had a lot of that was already solidified in your mind there. Yep. When you look back in those early days, um, I've, I've asked this question to a few pastors because part of my dissertation was on pastoral longevity. And I've asked that to guys like George Grant. As you look back, what was your main, if there was any, I suppose there was, what was your main insecurity in those early days? Insecurity? I guess, okay, it was personal. Okay. Because my besetting sin in the past had been too quick-tempered. Okay. And so I had, I I thought that, that I, I believed that was, Vastly improved, right? Mm-hmm. But I did have a concern that it wasn't whooped. See, okay. So that was that. What I would say was probably my principal insecurity in taking the ministry here, which I intended to be permanent. Yeah. Um, and and I, I want to come back to that. Okay. So remind me. Um, but but the second one was, even though I had. Well, the counseling program at the school where I went wasn't particularly good. Mm-hmm. I mean, they hated Jay Adams. Mm. And um, so I did have some insecurities about the counseling side of the pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up uh, going down and taking a course from Jay Adams, which helped a lot. Yeah. Um, of course, he was still fairly young and active in those days. Yeah. Um, we got into a discussion about millennialism, though. Uh, because I was post mill, he was he first an adamant, ardent, 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 yeah, 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 strange yeah. kind of ob mill, right? Because he was pre- a preterist as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, the, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, so it's it's interesting, and and of course, anyway, so so that, but that would have been an, another insecurity. Okay, yeah. Okay, so you you mentioned uh, about the um, about the nature of uh, of permanence in church life was part of the 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 reaction as a young pastor. Was it because you wanted to rush to what you viewed as a sense of immediate justice? Yeah. What do you develop that a little bit? Yeah. Well, it's it's helpful for your listeners to know that, for one thing, when I came to this church, it was a community church. Okay. Had a very minimalistic doctrinal statement. Okay. And at the time, they had term elder. Well, they had term deacons. But the deacons actually functioned both as elders and deacons. I see. All right. So the four guys that were on that board at the time, uh, one of the questions they asked me was, where where do you stand? I think the way they put it was, where do you stand on predestination versus free will? Which, of course, is a false dichotomy. It is, yeah. But uh, I stand on compatibilism. That's right. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so I was very straightforward with them. I said, look, um, you know, I, under, I understand there is something to the free will argument, but I'm convinced that God is absolutely sovereign, and that sovereignty applies also to our salvation. By the way, it's interesting because Paul says, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's not just predestined to be saved, yeah. but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Whole other discussion. But, Anyway, so it turns out that these four guys, two of them said they agreed with me. Yeah. 
One of them said he disagreed with me, but he was still okay with me being their pastor. Okay. The fourth one said, I don't have a position. I'm never going to take a position. Oh, okay. So he said, whatever you believe is fine with me. Wow. Yeah. So that's the, that was the situation. Yeah. Um, some other issues are a little more touchy. So like, you know, but, but anyway, so the point is, I was, I, I was convinced from the get go that trying to rush through a change would be foolish. Mm-hmm. I just preached the word. And, but my preaching was, I avoid buzzwords, right? Yeah. yeah. But my preaching was to lay out the, the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty as it affects all kinds of things. And I was not hesitant to uh, appeal to the Old Testament. I just ignored the scriptures, the strictures that were put upon that by, by dispensationalism. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I basically preached like a reformed person would preach. Mm-hmm. And I had one guy actually recruited him and his family to the church. They just moved to Alaska. I met them, invited them. They became members and so forth. This guy would get, would approach me every Sunday after worship and say, Boy, thanks, Jack. That was a really good sermon. I really particularly enjoy the way you bring the Old Testament into the story. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Four years of this. And then one day, I'm over at that same guy's house. Mm-hmm. And we were actually hand-loading some cartridges for our hunting rifles. And um, uh, we go in. His wife says, hey, i got some, some food for you. So we went in the house. We were out in the shop. Went into the house, and we're sitting around the table. And we're talking about Christian stuff. And I don't remember exactly how it came up, but he brought up something about Calvin. Mm. And he said something about Calvin's teaching that was totally incorrect. Right. And I had been through the Institutes. I'd read some of his commentaries and so forth. And I said, well, actually, Dave, Calvin didn't say that at all. Yeah. He goes, how would you know? <laughs> I said, well, because I've read him. You've read Calvin? <laughs> now he's angry. Yeah. Right. How dare you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, beginning the next week, he's talking to people in the church about pastor of ours is a Calvinist. we got to get rid of him. Yeah. They split the church. Oh, my goodness. And we went through nightmare in that game. Oh, my. Absolute nightmare. Um, but what was interesting is about 20% of the church left and went down the road to an Armenian Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a bunch of people on the fringes that had been coming and listening to my sermons but weren't members, mm-hmm. they all joined. Oh, how about that? And that's that, that led the way for us to change uh, to uh, covenantal using, sort of view. Well, using the Westminster standards are now our covenantal mean? standards. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, so that was about a two-year process because I think we, after all that happened, yeah. Uh, but but in nineteen I think it was nineteen ninety one. You can look at our church history, but I think in nineteen ninety one we we adopted the Westminster standards yeah. and became a, formally a reformed church. My point in all this is that getting in a big hurry is a bad idea. Yeah, I mean I did this over a period of three four years. Yeah. So when suddenly it was discovered that I was a Calvinist, right, right, like I never denied any such thing. In fact, I'd quote Calvin sometimes in my sermons. But once he discovered that, then I was. Public enemy number one, but because I had been gently and pastorally bringing the congregation along, the majority of the church came to my defense. That's a great. They were ready for it. Yeah, that's a great lesson there. 
That's I, a great lesson. If you I, shepherd people, they'd be much, they're much more willing to accept your your uh, theological. Which you know, my the categories I've used in the past in terms of church life and is you've got culture, theology, and liturgy. People are much more predisposed to accepting theology and liturgy if the culture you bring as a minister is the kind of culture that allows them to be um, feel a, a level of, of safety and refuge under your shepherd and care. That's very well said, Yuri. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So this this congregation began um, 1984. No, no, the church was started in 1958. So this congregation was back before statehood. 58, the year before statehood. Okay, and you, um, but your pastor began in '84. I came in '84. Correct. Okay, so you're you're, so you've made some changes, obviously. <laughs> and so, let's just say uh, a few things have changed since then. As you as you look back into pastor work, how how many years now? Well, here thirty eight. Thirty eight. But total uh, close to fifty. Okay, and you do know this is this information is all very fresh data in my mind because I just did a. Yeah five years of dissertation on these issues, that's incredibly rare. Uh, sadly. It's sadly incredibly rare. I think the American average now is 3.2 years that's per sad. pastor. So you're, sad. you're reaching five decades. That, that's pretty unique. What is the, what's the caliber and the backbone of pastors 50 years ago, what you see now? What, what are some of the main differences? <laughs> you're shaking your head. We've replaced bones with rubber. <laughs> replaced bones with rubber. Well, yeah, I mean, you asked about their spine. Correct, yep. Um, you know, something I learned from, from the Reformers, and I obviously didn't know them, <laughs> but, but from, years. Reading, from reading them and reading about them. Yeah. Uh I believe that generally speaking, and I, there undoubtedly are exceptions, but pastors should understand that God is calling us to a place and a people. Mm. He's not calling us to a profession. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's one of the problems we have. Um, I don't know if you've read No Place for Truth yeah, by Wells. Yeah. His section on the professionalization of the clergy is worth a reread. Yeah, Piper borrowed tremendously from that. It was a, a trilogy, right? A great trilogy, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, um, I, I can see them on my shelf where I'm sitting. Yeah. Um, but but I think he's, he's, he's nailed something there. It's a mentality, mm. right? If you think you're going into the ministry because you're going to be a professional, you're missing something very important. And so, um, look at, look at what, look at what, Farrell and those guys said to Calvin, mm-hmm. you know, either you go back or God will take you to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, paraphrasing, but <laughs> yeah. that's the gist, right? Yeah. And um, I think that, I think we, it, the church would be so much better served if people, if men would be willing to make that kind of commitment. Um, treat it as a marriage. Treat it as a marriage, a, yes. Yeah. Why do you think it's okay to divorce your church when things get rough? Mm-hmm. And and that's why I mentioned the, sp- the, the spinal thing. I mean, I think one of the reasons that churches change pastors so often is the pastors don't want to deal with, with opposition. They don't want to deal with difficulty. they got no guts. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that universally. Right, right. Obviously, right. But, but I think that we need to toughen up. I mean, look, it would have been very easy to quit 
1988. Yeah. My wife went through hell. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Church struggles and difficulties are hard on the pastor. They're harder on his wife. Yeah. Um, but we kneeled down and prayed together regularly, and we just said, we're going to push our way through this. And I'll tell you something else. Yeah. So we we tried to moderate this situation when these guys were trying to split the church. Yeah. And so I told the men, I said, look, you guys all know other pastors in this state that you trust. Yeah. Why don't you put together a team of three pastors? You choose them. I want nothing to do with choosing them. And have them come up and see if he can't help. they can't help us work through this. Mm-hmm. So they did. They picked three guys. Now, I knew one of them fairly well. I knew the other two. I'd met them. and My acquaintance wasn't deep. These guys, three, three guys came up. And they interviewed me. And then they went off to interview the, th- the three elders that were deacons that were core of the problem. I met with all, all four of them, but three of them were problematic. Mm-hmm. They came back to my office late in the afternoon, and they walked into my office, and the one of them who was then pointed the spokesman looked me in the eye and he said, under no circumstances do you resign. He said, this is not a theological discussion. It is a power struggle, Ooh. and you will stay. Yeah. Now, that was very insightful, but it was also very helpful. Because, okay, I put my shoulder to the wheel. I'm not looking back. And so we went went through it, and it was damaging personally. It was hurtful. It was uh, damaging to the congregation. But we came out of the other side. Yeah, and you you know this better than I do, but most, most church... Kerfuffles and brouhaha's are mainly a power struggle. Uh, they masquerade themselves under, you know, big, yeah. big theological sort of categories. Yep. But uh, yep. you and I could probably sit here and give very examples of how these things, yep. how these things happen. So I would say the thing that was hardest for the church, forget about me for a second, yeah, was several of those nineteen years that I was Bible, because you know for three years. I was gone for, well, not gone every Sunday, but gone for the most part for three months a year mm-hmm. when I was working for the legislature. And then when I took the uh, general manager's job, I was gone most of the time. Mm-hmm. Then when I went to D.C., I was on leave of absence. So during that time period, the church shrunk greatly. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of them were people that moved out of state. One person died, but but most of it was just attrition, right? And um, when I came back from D.C. and was able to be here regularly again, we were down to five families and two single men. Mm, wow. So from 2004 to now, we've built back up to where we are. That's wonderful. And uh, it is wonderful. But the point is, church survived that time period. Yeah, And it survived because of two or three families, two or three men and their families, who just said, we're not going to let this die. Mm. So they were very committed to the to the vision, and they were committed to seeing the, uh, Bingo. the church persevere um, yep. through absence. That's great. How... This is a much. This is part of the church politic question, which I, th- I think is fascinating. Most people don't give much attention to it, but I think it's wonderful to have this discussion. 
how important is it for a pastor to be sort of surrounded by the two big categories, allies and confidants? And do those, do those mix? Yeah. Well, I assume you're talking about in the leadership. In the leadership. Yeah. 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 It's very, very important. And I, and I will say this, and I say this without any hesitation, having served as six years as the presiding minister council. Right. And I guess a total of six years as PM of the Presbytery. Yeah. Once before and once after or something. I don't remember. Yeah. Several years anyway. Right. And then two years under Doug as assistant presiding <laughs> right. minister council. Right. Um, I, I have a lot of experience of problems developing in other churches. Mm-hmm. And I would say without hesitation that the majority of church problems, at least that I've seen in the CREC since I've been involved in as a, as a result of having elders that don't coalesce well with each other or with the pastor. Mm. And I think that's largely because our standards for who becomes an elder aren't high enough. That's not a carefully. Enough. No, right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point that I think I've uh, shared before, probably not as eloquently, but I, I think the people assume that most church divisions occur from, the the congregants themselves, but the reality is the majority of them begin among dissension among session members. Yep. And that overflows to the congregation. Yep. Yeah, that's a, a very important. Uh, um, let me follow up with just that because that's a that's a part of an interest that I really uh, something I take a lot of interest in. How important is it for for sessions to befriend one another? Yeah. No. That I think that's I think that's very very important. Um, I I think that. You mean session to session? Or, well, or mem- members the session? of the session. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought you meant. Yeah, no, I think that I think that we have to be we're not just partners in ministry. We're brothers in Christ. Right, right, yeah. And I think it's very, very important that we elevate that and work at developing a friendship. Now I'm fortunate in that way because one of my elders, you know, I've known him since the eighties. Uh, he's been a member of our church since 91. Yeah. Um, and over the years, we developed a friendship even before he became an elder. Uh, and and I think the value of that friendship level makes us more effective. Yes. As, as, a, as a ministry team. Yeah. You know, and, you know, we... Less true with some of the others because I have known them as long. But, right, right. But I do think cultivating that friendship. In fact, in a session meeting just the other day, we were talking about having to do, trying to do more socially with our wives. You know, because it's easy to kind of let that go. You're busy. Because you assume, right, the, the permanence of these men, they're there, right? Right. And, and, and all of them are active in, in right. ministering to other couples, you know, having, social times with them to kind of encourage them in the faith. And we don't do it enough with each other. Right. So right. that was yeah. the point. Yeah. Fantastic. I've counseled because now my role is PM. I've counseled a lot of sessions that have struggled with getting along, especially during session meetings. Right. Yeah. Think about that. I've encouraged them to say, you should change your environment. Yeah. Sometimes those white walls don't uh, instill a sense of uh, purity and consensus, you know, uh, do but, their wives get along? That's a good. That's a good question too. I always tell the guys to put some steak and whiskey in front of everyone, and uh, a few cigars to to build that camaraderie, not just around the agenda, but around just the the means that God has put in your front of you. You know, when I was PMOC, and I won't tell you who this was, but I encountered a church, a 
in a conversation with a pastor, one of our CREC churches, was asking me for help because he was having some conflicts. And he told me that the only time the elders talked to each other at all was at session meetings. I said, there is your fundamental problem. You have to change that. Now, Jerry and I, for example, I mean, for a long time after one of our elders left the state for for uh, business job re- reasons, he got promoted and t- took him out of the state. So for a while, Jerry and I were the only two elders. Yeah. I don't think a week went by that we didn't talk on the phone at least twice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that builds, <laughs> uh, that builds security in um, the two fundamental areas, I think, with service and mission. And that's a... Uh, that's really crucial. Yeah. So when you think when you think of uh, church, we've got about 15 minutes here. When you think of church life in general, um, has the church provided, in their experience, a, a framework to think about society, or has the church been so concerned? You know, we talk about the Westminster West sort of category. They've, they've been so internalized, word and sacrament, word and sacrament, do you, do you think the church today is prepared for the kinds of things that are happening today? I specifically think that that COVID revealed quite a bit in terms of that preparedness. Talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I I I, I can't talk for everybody else's church. Yeah, but but I can tell you what what we try to do here. Yeah. So we we have and have now for. Whew, 20 years, 19 years anyway, mm-hmm. uh, a monthly men's forum. Okay. And we encourage all the guys to come. And sometimes we have quite a packed house. I mean, my living room would be full. Yeah. And um, in those forum, in that fora, in those fora, <laughs> get it right in a second. <laughs> um, that always cracks me up when you put an MS on the end of that word. No, there's no such thing as forums. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in those fora. Yeah. We don't do strict what you might strictly consider Bible study. We we read a book together and discuss it. And yeah. they expect they're expected to do the reading when, when they're not there, right? So right. we come in and discuss a chapter or two or three, depends on the size of the book. Right. And we have have we we've done I think the first book we ever studied was Foundation Social Order. Rush Duty. Yeah. You My know, goodness. the book on the early Christian Council. Yeah. That's a great book. It's a fantastic book. But yeah. that was that was two decades ago. Yeah. So we've selected books that deal with an array of issues, social, uh, family, uh, uh, historical, you know. But the reason for doing that is because we want to promote Biblical thinking about the full array of life. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have those discussions that center around those things. And um, I, I think that it's very important. I, I think I mentioned this to you earlier. Rushney said, look, it's not enough to know the Bible. You also have to know the world in which you live. Otherwise, you don't know how to apply the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we try to do is is have discussions about that sort of stuff. And in, in how do we... How do we express a Christian faith in this realm, this realm, this realm? And I'm not, you know, I'm very, I'm very appreciative of, of some of Moscow's efforts. Yeah, to yeah. Put that kind of thinking out into the, out into the, uh, uh, 
public Broder, square. Broder's public square. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not really equipped to do that kind of stuff. Right. Beyond our own circle. Yep. And that, that's the other thing. And I, and I do think this is something that our CRC people should think about very seriously is don't everybody try to be the same as somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right. We have different roles in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a blogger. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I'm not against, I don't read very many blogs because mm-hmm. I don't have time. Right. Right. But, but I'm not against the concept. But some people, Doug's one of them, mm-hmm. are called to kind of preach into that larger public, public square. God called me to develop a church here. Right. 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 So I, I'm not going to feel guilty because I'm not a famous blogger. Right. Right. I don't care about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I care that it happened. Yeah. But it's not my job. I, I want to build this church. We've planted five churches in Alaska over the years. Mm. One of them is currently a mission church of the CREC in Fairbanks. Yeah. That's why I'm, I'm, I backed, I asked not to be on council anymore. Yeah. I mean, I'm 73. Yeah. Maybe I got seven, eight years of ministry left. There's it's a sense, all going to get poured into this place. Right, right. There's a sense in which the, um, you know, that you have your season. There's a season for everything. There's a yeah. sense in which you have your season to pour into the, the public life as a figure. But then there's a season where you must pour into the local life as a figure. So God, I think that plays also to the conversation we we're having earlier about, about the emphases that we have in the CREC, which we have a, for lack of a better term, we have a familial emphasis, we have a church emphasis, and we have a, let's just say, a, not a status, but a, a state emphasis. Civil. Civil, exactly, exactly. What's the, what's the common good, right? Romans 13, 4. Yeah. And, and none of us would sit here and say, you know, if I were to sort of define myself, much more likely in the Jordanian lightheart side. Part of that is because of my personal interaction with these men and geography, right? There's yeah. next door to me. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but none of us would say, yeah, we have a, we have a very low view of the family because we're church <laughs> or we have a low view of the church. Right. Or we think the state should play no role. The civil sphere should play no role in shaping, yeah. you know, um, structures and, 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 and laws and things like that. But God has given certain people a desire to push certain ideas rather than others. Right. Mm-hmm. We can't do everything. When we try to do everything, we do nothing at all. As Richard Pratt used to tell me. Yeah. And so when you have what you say is really interesting because you're saying you had a season where this was fundamental to your DNA as a, as a man, mm-hmm. but now you're, you want to shape your legacy is to, to shape your community here. Yeah. yeah. Which means that in some ways, which I think is how pastorates should be shaped, but we should all be happy generalists in this sense of, which is why I'm fascinated to talk to you because you've had, such an incredible life in the political sphere. You saw what that what that was like. And some people become so cynical that they never want to touch that world again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How the heck did you escape that, uh, well, that temptation? Yeah, that's really interesting because you're right. I mean, if, if you let it, it will wear you down. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the, the, the pace on Capitol Hill. Here's what's interesting. I believe at the time I was the only chief of staff in the United States Senate. Remember, there's only a hundred of them at the time. <laughs> right. I don't think there were any others that didn't have uh, a doctor of law degree. Okay. People get law degrees with the sole purpose 
of becoming staff on Chapel Hill. And, and yeah, and I'll tell you what, it, it it leans to the left. Even in the Republican offices, they lean to the left. Uh, so anyway, it, yes, it will wear you down. But we have a duty mm-hmm. to be involved in places where God puts us and to to recognize that the church has something to say to the culture. Mm. And that means he also has something to say to lawmakers. Um, but how did you ask how I escaped? Well, it was pretty, pretty simple, actually. Um, my, my whole purpose in ever becoming bivocational was to make it possible for me to continue to minister in the church. So that was your, from the beginning, that was kind of the way you thought about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I financially independent. So what you're talking about? Well, I, I wouldn't say financially independent. I mean, it, it, church, I still rely to some extent on my income. For but did you want to be financially independent uh, in, in that world so you well, could? Well, yeah. So let me let me back up. The first seven years I was at this church, I was full time pastor. Yes. Then it became I had four teenagers. I'd been there seven years and I hadn't got a raise. Yeah. And then the church had dwindled because of the big conflict. Right. And then we also went through a recession at that time. Alaska lost a, a large percentage of its population. Well, probably four or five percent of its population wow. because we had a terrible recession in the late eighties. Yeah. Okay, so so it got to the place where I had to do something. So I started a consulting service, so I operated out of my library, uh doing technical writing and, and contributing to magazines and so forth. Yeah. Um uh but when it became clear that I had to do more than that, yeah, I mean, it was never, I never wanted that to be permanent. The whole yeah. point was to, to get through that period so that I could be, devoted. and a lot, it took 19 years. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, but, uh, yeah. So when I retired in 20, 2010, I had, um, I had some pensional support right. that I'd earned in, in two different jobs that made it possible for the church to pay me what they could afford and I could actually live on it. I see. Right. I but as, you. as we've gotten bigger, they've been able to yeah. incrementally re- increase the, yeah. the support. But yeah. Anyway. So, um, but yeah, I think that the commitment to be here, right. I, I, I'm sure if I wanted to, I could have candidate somewhere else. and oh, got yeah. a church that could support me. Oh, with your resume. But most no, certainly, I yeah. called to this place. Yeah. And to these people. Yeah. And and I, I dearly wish more pastors would look at life that way. You know? Yeah, you know, we, we critique and rightly so as good Protestants, we critique the uh the constant entitled of a father as applied to pastoral figures. But the apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, I was a father unto them. Yeah. There is a heavy fatherly emphasis pastorally that attaches you not just to the job of the pulpit, but to the job of the pew. Yep. I mean, when you think about it, you, you're baptizing their babies. Yep. You're marrying their children. Yep. You're burying grandma and grandpa. Now I'm baptizing the children of their children. See, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a, that, that is the, that is one of the, the magic of pastoral ministry that most people don't, don't get to see. No. And I, I hope I see one day, but our, our mutual friend, Rich Bletz always talks about those first seven years of the pastorate. And how those can be, you know, death and resurrection seasons. Yep. But if you don't stay long term, then you're, you never see the resurrection. You never see the resurrection. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You're defined by this or that crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, 
So that's a, but there's a very intentional, um, well, you know, emotional side of the pastor that most people don't see. Yeah. And you, and it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not easy. People always ask what, what's unique about the pastoral ministry. For me, what's unique about it is that theoretically I take my clerical collar off. Practically, I don't, mm-hmm. which means that when I go to bed, I'm thinking about, I don't know, a sermon, a counseling session, something. Mm-hmm. When I wake up, it's there again. Mm-hmm. You're you're always on call. And I've, you know, I've written about this. Of course, you you got to take your time off. But theoretically, you do. What what what's time off? <laughs> <laughs> you got to come to Florida to see what that looks like. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But that's uh, that. That's really fascinating. What's what's one of the most rewarding things about the, the pastor for you as you kind of reaching seventy two, seventy three, fifty years? Yeah, I, I think there's no hesitation at the answer to that question. Watching generational development of the faith. Watching generational development of faith. Yeah. I mean, you know, people, young people who I baptized when they were babies, now being faithful mothers and fathers children reflecting that mm. I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything more rewarding than but also just confidence that you have in your congregation they learn to have in you you know I mean so there's this growing uh, so growing appreciation for your work um, because you have lived because they have seen you live it out before them right yeah, and not giving up on them. Yeah, and that's what you would counsel, let's say, a, a 28-year-old guy fresh out of seminary going to the first pastorate. What's one of the things you would really stress? Well, I, first thing I'd ask him is, have you ever held a real job? Yeah, they've ever held a real job, yeah. That, that's what I'd ask him. Yeah. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make is put people into lead pastoral roles. Now, associate's a different thing. Yep, yep. Right? But put people into lead pastoral roles never done anything except graduate high school, graduate college, graduate seminary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what? You don't know anything about life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't take my first full-time pastor, permanent lead pastor, until I was 34 years old. Yeah. I spent two years in the war. Yeah. I worked as a logger, a miner. Yeah. Um, as a mechanic. And doing that while I was going to school. Um, those those experiences change who you are. Yeah, and if you do it conscientiously in service of the God of the Lord God, they change who you are for the better, and your congregation is richer because of. It. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, <laughs> one quick story. Yeah, yeah, please. I served as an interim pastor in a little church. Years ago, um, and the whole whole congregation made up of people who worked in the mines. Mm-hmm. Well, one guy worked in a for an aqueduct. The rest of them were all miners. Yeah, and I had three women bringing their children to church whose husbands didn't come. So I reached out to those husbands, and one of them, it, two, they were all friendly, but two of them were really clear they didn't want to. One guy was uh, a truck driver at the mine, and uh, he had a Jeep pa- passion. Mm-hmm. 
So I would go over to his house in the evening and help him work on his CJ5. And we'd talk about the faith. And pretty soon he's asking me pretty pointed questions. Because his wife went to church, took the boys. He never went. Yeah. After about a month of that, he shows up at church one Sunday with his wife and kids. And a day or two later, we're having a conversation, and he tells me that he placed his faith in Christ. Oh, wow. Now, 30 years later, I'm up here. And I get a call from his wife, Sandy. She said, took us a while to track you down, but we wanted to call and tell you that we're still members of our church and both of our boys are married and they and their families are in the faith. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, yeah. that, that just makes your heart glow. Well, there's a sort of the encouraging notes you keep on your desk in times of discouragement. You can have these embodied stories as a way of, yeah, but the reason I told you that story is because that truck driver is not going to be reached by my preaching. Yep. He's going to be reached by the fact that I went out and spent time helping him fix his Jeep. Yeah. And guys that have nothing but academic background aren't going to be able to do that. People people assume that the academy is Narnia, but the academy is the wardrobe. You spend a it's, long it's time. The wor- it's the wood between the worlds. It's the wood between the Well, there you go. That's good. Yeah, and you got to get to it in order to see the, um, you know, put all that into into um, into fruit and productivity. Put on the ring and jump in the pool. Put on the ring, jump in the pool. Yeah, that's fantastic. Jack Phelps, we're reaching the two hour mark. That's a, a perfect. I, I I suspect we've only covered the a little mini version of your, the entirety of your life. You are by far one of the most fascinating men I've met. Oh, oh. You're, yeah. you're very kind. Thank you for hosting us. And as we're doing this interview, I'm looking outside and there's uh, snow surrounding your property here it's a beautiful blue day. sky behind it. blue sky behind it. it is picturesque speaking of narnia that's where we are right now god bless you thank you